Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. What do you hope for the church in the next 50 years? I'd like to see the church continue to uh, support vocations for for women. Now, leaving out the men, of course, I don't mean leave out the men. And um, so the church would continue to grow and be more inclusive and more uh, understanding of people and their needs. And um, I guess that's it. Just help it continue to grow in grace, I guess you'd say. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Happy Easter still to all our listeners. I hope it's been beautiful, full of good food, nourishing time in nature or with people you love, and a time of living into, even if in small ways, our Lord's victory. For me, this has definitely involved morning walks to a neighborhood donut shop and finding some lightness, even some fun in my prayer time. At the same time, I'm already thinking ahead to Pentecost because that's how I do. I'm thinking ahead to that sending out that's about to happen soon and thinking too about ways to deepen my own vocations this year as a woman, a woman in the publishing world, in the arts, and in ministry. This week, we will hear a conversation in honor of women's vocation, women's sending out. And I'd like to dedicate this episode to a particular saint who may have already come to your mind, that woman who stayed at the empty tomb, that bold apostle to the apostles. St. Mary Magdalene. As I may have shared with you previously sometime on this show, I have a passion for lay ministry and expanding the role of lay leadership, but ordination discernment has also been an earlier part of my journey. The ordination of women, much less women's spiritual authority and spiritual leadership more generally, this is not an issue from a bygone era. It's still a live question in many parts of the church, as we know, and in many parts of the Anglican world. Now, how does healthy, continued discernment about this happen while maintaining unity in the church? 
how does rooted transition happen when the time comes to change things? And how can excavating history be a part of the Holy Spirit's work in helping the church discern good paths forward? I think that women's leadership is a good case in point here. And today, we're going to look specifically at the question of whether to open the ordained diaconate to women in the Roman Catholic Church, or actually, scratch that, to reopen the diaconate to women. We will talk about that. This is a fascinating movement, and I think it offers a good case study for Anglicans and other Christians as we continue to discern, and by God's grace, discern together how to be faithful to his leading in our time. For today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with two women. Now, one of them you heard in a cameo at the beginning, and that is Sister Priscilla Wright, a precious firecracker of a woman, and she is the Episcopal Church's last living deaconess. You can enjoy a whole article about Sister Priscilla by clicking the link in the show notes today. Unfortunately, in an incredible act of technological forgetfulness, I failed to hit record on the rest of my interview with Sister Priscilla. I'm sorry, but please go ahead and read Sister Priscilla's article, and maybe sometime we can have her back on the show. Now, fortunately, I did have my coffee the morning I interviewed Dr. Phyllis Zagano, and we'll enjoy that conversation today. Phyllis is an internationally acclaimed Catholic scholar and lecturer on contemporary spirituality and women's issues in the church. Her award-winning books include Holy Saturday, An Argument for the Restoration of the Female Diaconate in the Catholic Church, Women and Catholicism, Gender, Communion, and Authority, and Women, Icons of Christ, which is sitting at my elbow right now. I cannot wait to read it. Phyllis has also served as a member of the Papal Commission for the Study of the Diaconate of Women and is the winner of two Fulbright Awards. She holds a research appointment at Hofstra University and is a contributor to the National Catholic Reporter and Religion News Service, among other news and commentary outlets. Thank you for joining us today. And as you listen in, we hope you might think of a woman in leadership that you can support or pray for this week. We need each other, y'all. Enjoy the conversation. Phyllis, it's a it's an honor to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you, Amber. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you are currently doing and how you came to a call as a supporter of women in the diaconate? Well, it's an interesting uh, interesting story. I, I was uh, finishing my doctorate at the State University of New York at Stony Brook and began to think about what I would do with it. And my boss was a Jesuit priest, actually. He was the vice president for the university, a public university. And I said to him, I, I, my, my lunch was always on the, uh, these were a long time ago. It was before we had uh, refrigerators in the office. And my lunch would be on the uh, ledge outside his window. And I had to walk past his office door to get my lunch. So I, I walked past and, and I saw him in there. And I said, you know, Patrick, um, this word diaconia keeps coming to me in prayer. And I said, we talk about that. And he sat me down and he, he explained that uh, there were women deacons in the early church, that this was uh, an ordained ministry, 
and that that the call to the diaconate had been revised by the Second Vatican Council in the Catholic Church uh, for men to to live the word, the liturgy, and charity in service to the people of God. And I, I you know, I, I said, thought to myself, that sounded like a pretty good idea. So I, I wasn't too far away from the diocesan seminary in Huntington, and I went over there. They said, you know, you're too smart to be a deacon. Uh, uh, we'll put you in the priest program. <laughs> and I said, okay, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> no offense to so, all deacons everywhere. <laughs> no offense. Right, no offense at all. Um, and I, I, I stayed for about a year uh, at, at, at that program. But it just wasn't right. Uh, it was, uh, it, as I say, it just wasn't right. Uh, but while I was there, an interesting thing happened. You know, there were three, um, I, three of my friends, men in the priestly studies, and uh, they called me up and they said, you know, the apostolic nuncio is coming. Now, the nuncio is uh, the the ambassador of the pope to to the United States, but he's also the individual who chooses bishops, and he goes around visiting uh, different territories. So they said the apostolic nuncio is coming, and uh, it's uh, House Cassock and Sash. And I didn't have that, of course, so I wore a yellow pantsuit and sat in the, uh, we used to call them the nosebleed seats in the chapel during the, uh, the mass. And then my friends put me on the end of the table in the refectory, and the bishop and the nuncio walked right past me. I was big enough to see anyway, and obviously I was the only one in a yellow pantsuit. And as they walked past, the bishop, who who knew me because he had played basketball with my father, said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm in studies. <laughs> and he said, for what? I said, to be a deacon. <laughs> and they kept walking. And at some point during the meal, the assistant to the nuncio, a young priest, came and said, the nuncio would like to see you. And it was uh, Archbishop Jadot who met me in the front hall. And I remember it quite vividly. It was October. The sun was brilliant and the glass uh, shining through the glass. And he interviewed me for about 20 minutes. And I sa- he said, don't quit. And I said, okay, you know, uh, and I, I didn't. I did, and I didn't. Uh, I continued studies. I, I completed uh, elsewhere at, at Fordham University and St. John's University the, the academic requirements for priesthood, but began to be a, a teacher, an academic. And uh, but I continued the discussion uh, with others. And uh, I guess in the early '80s, I, I uh, met John Cardinal O'Connor, and who encouraged me. And uh, he said, you know, if you really know something about women deacons and you write a good book, I'll get it to the Pope. I said, okay. <laughs> so, so I wrote a book. Well, he helped me outline it. So, <laughs> you know, and since then I've been publishing uh, for, for about 20, 25 years uh, on the topic and continuing the discussion in the Catholic Church. As you've reflected further on the call that you felt and perhaps still feel to be a deacon. What do you think is at stake in the ordination of women in general? Why should women be ordained? Or if women were never ordained, what would be the big deal? Well, there are several questions there. Uh, One of the arguments against me is that the women of the past were not sacramentally ordained. Okay, 
But the women of history who were ordained as deacons were, in many cases, ordained as deacons with the same ceremonies as the men who were being ordained as deacons. They were uh, ordained at the altar during the liturgy. They, uh, with the epiclesis, with the the laying on of hands, uh, they were given a stole, uh, and they were called deacons. (laughs) And in some cases, they were called deaconesses, but that was really an accretion of language, and it, it, has, it led to a lot of confusion in later centuries. If women are not to be ordained in the Catholic Church, I think that that will um, redound to the Church's uh, actual disgrace, uh, because there were two arguments in the documents against women priests— In 1976, there were two arguments. One, the argument from authority that Christ only chose male apostles. And secondly, the argument that, uh, uh, called the iconic argument, that that women cannot image Christ. Mm -hmm. In 1994, that second argument was dropped, and only the argument from authority remained. But in both of those documents, in 1976, 1994, the diaconate was expressly left out. Uh, it, was, it was not considered in questioning. The officials said, no, this does not apply to the diaconate. Coincidentally, at the time, in fact, during the 90s, there were uh, consultations with the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the old holy office, about women in the diaconate. And between 1992 and 1997, a uh, document was completed. It was about 17 pages, and the document said, you know, it's no big deal. Sure, women can be ordained as deacons. But that document was never promulgated. The prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith at the time would not sign it. Uh, His name was Joseph Ratzinger. And he, being in charge of of the International Theological Commission, which is uh, working with and for the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. He renamed an entirely new subcommittee, which worked another five years from 1997 to 2002 on the question. And then a 17-page document, which was never promulgated, turned into a something like 78-page document, only published in French, actually, which said that, well, women deacons... Um, in the past, didn't do the same things as men deacons of the past, and uh, some cases their ceremonies were distinct. Um, and actually, this is something that the magisterium must decide. Well, this document was promulgated. It was it was uh, published by uh, and signed by Joseph Ratzinger. But by saying the magisterium must decide, they're saying really it's up to the Pope, and the Pope at the time was John Paul II, and he did nothing. And so the the question languished in the Catholic Church, and uh, then there was a new pope. The new pope was Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, and he did nothing. So it wasn't until uh, Pope Francis came along in 2013 that he began to, uh, I guess, think about it, I don't know, but in 2016 at a meeting, a triennial meeting of the International Union of Superiors General, these are the about 1,500 heads of women religious orders around the world. He accepted questions from them, and the first two questions were, we are doing the work of the diaconate. Mm -hmm. Why can't we be ordained? 
and he said, that's a good idea. Um, I, I, and they say, they say, well, wh- why, why don't you name a commission? He said, okay. And by August of 2016, he named 12 scholars, including me, the only one from the Western Hemisphere, to go to Rome and discuss this issue. We did for about two years. If, if our listeners wanted to find a definition of the diaconate in uh, the Anglican Communion, they need look no farther than the Book of Common Prayer for that description in the beginning of the service for the ordination of a deacon. However, what are the roles of a deacon in the Roman Catholic Church? Well, historically in our common heritage, the deacon has has been the minister of what today the Catholic Church calls the word, the liturgy and charity. The, the primary tasks and duties of the deacon throughout history uh, have been to manage the charity of the church, including to manage the treasury of the church, um, mm. to preach the word, including ca- being catechists, the word, the liturgy, and charity to to participate in the liturgy. What the deacon does that other ministers of charity cannot do in the Catholic Church is preach the homily during the Eucharistic celebration. Mm-hmm. Um, the deacon, as a cleric, can be a single judge in a canonical trial. But most importantly, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I know Sister Priscilla actually has said it's not about dressing up, uh, and it isn't. Um, but more importantly, I think to see a woman on the altar with the celebrant, um, I'd love to see a woman in St. Peter's next to the Pope proclaiming the gospel, because then you are proclaiming to the world that, that women are made in the image and likeness of, of God, that women can uh, be the icons of Christ. Without, without that understanding, I think the other two-thirds of the world that's not Christian has an out uh, and mm-hmm. says, well, the Catholics mm-hmm. don't think so, so <laughs> why, mm-hmm. can't, why should we? I mean, I... I there are terrible things done uh, to people, to women all over the world. Uh, uh, female genital mutilation, rapes, um, murders, certainly, wife beating, uh, dowry burnings. Uh, the, kind, the kinds of, of disregard for the humanity of women that, that becomes toxic. And, and the malevolent understanding and application of this, that women are somehow subordinate creatures, that there's some kind of a dual nature, nature anthropology, that men and women are not the same. Men and women are not the same, but men and women are equal. And, and I think that's something that the, uh, the church, all churches, needs to, to underscore. Getting an Easter basket from my parents at my age really not embarrassing. Once they realize that I'm more into like Ferrero Rocher, not so much into jelly beans, we have had a pretty good understanding. This is part of our celebration of Easter, even if somewhat ironically, and it's one of the things that we share as a family. Today, I want to encourage you to think about your family of faith at Easter time, especially in the Anglican Communion, and consider an Easter gift to the Living Church. We are a nonprofit ministry. We rely on donations to continue bringing erratic and incisive journalism, theology, book and art reviews, cultural analysis, and learning and relationship-building opportunities for clergy and lay leaders in a uniquely Catholic, evangelical, and ecumenical way. 
To support what we do, you can go to livingchurch.org forward slash donate and give now or learn about creative giving options like gifts of stock and bequests. We're not picky about what you decide to put in our Easter basket, and we're so grateful to you for considering a gift. Again, that's livingchurch.org forward slash donate or just click the link in the show notes. If there are, we, for lack of a better term, maybe we'll call them optics, but I don't mean in a shallow way, that if there are optics there, simply meaning what we see when we look at the main act of worship of the Christian church, then the optics are not to stroke the ego of, of well-to-do people. They're not to say, good, we've, we've, checked, a, we've checked a politically correct box. But you're saying that these optics are for the oppressed. They're for the people who need most to see the full dignity of women. Am I hearing that right? The optics, such as you put it, um, are important. And I'm not saying that at every Eucharist you have to have one from column A and one from column B and one from column C and just make it look, uh, uh, look like you think it ought. Uh, what I'm saying is that if at all times there are no women— um, then there is a problem. And the very special vocation of a deacon to stand in a kind of even prophetic way in some of those places can be really powerful. So I wonder when it comes to the ordination of women and acts of charity, serving the poor, I've thought of this myself, is that the ordination of women, one thing that it can do is it might honor particular gifts that women have for going to places speaking into situations that might be more difficult or even impossible for a man to do, situations of pastoral care, for example, female victims of sexual abuse. What are your thoughts on special roles that women can play as deacons and going places maybe men can't go? What have you seen? Well, let me tell you about Syria in the fifth century. You see, um, I, I had dinner uh, with the uh, patriarch of uh, Damascus and uh, the bishop of Damascus, and a Catholic bishop of Damascus, and uh, I asked him about women deacons in, in the early church. The Holy Father, actually, Pope Francis, had mentioned that a, a specialist in Syriac studies said, you know, there were women uh, who were ordained as deacons, he said. The Pope said, uh, in fact, when a woman accused her husband of beating her, she would go to the woman deacon who would take her testimony and bring it to the bishop. And I brought this up to the, uh, the bishop of Damascus, and he said, well, of course. I said, well, were they ordained? He said, of course they were. I said, why? He said, because you would never send a woman as an emissary of the bishop to his village. You would never send her to anoint. You would never send her to carry the sacrament unless she was ordained. And, 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 and we know because of the, the many, many um, documents we have of liturgies, of ordination liturgies, three or four of which are actually in the Vatican Library in the Pope's backyard, for both the East and the West, um, that these women were ordained. Now, if you bring this up to the 21st century, there are many situations where women need the ministry of women. And uh, I can give you an example from... Last Friday, a woman who works in the uh, soup kitchen every day found out that uh, the wife of a, a man whom she knows came looking for her. 
there was a problem. And she wanted to talk to a woman who represented the church to her. Uh, we have plenty of, of examples of women going into um, nursing facilities, into hospitals, where and prisons, where, where certainly the woman incarcerated, the woman hospitalized, and the women resident would prefer simply to talk to a woman. But again, I, you know, this is done today. There's nothing to take. Cannot take away the ministry that is done by non-ordained chaplains, by lay chaplains of any denomination. However, when the ordained person is there, the ordained person is there, as I said at the top, as a representative of the bishop. And, and there is something important to me about that, because by represent, as, a, as an ordained person representing the bishop, one is representing the care of the entire church and is bringing the blessing of the entire church. And in fact, may have a little bit more access to the... Uh, the facilities and the wealth of the of the entire church in order to help uh, individuals in need. I can actually speak from experience, Phyllis. I went to divinity school and then we do a few summer internships and then I had a fellowship after graduation. And during this fellowship, I got the chance to preach many times at a large Anglican church in Florida. I remember after preaching in the main service on a Sunday service, a woman coming up to me and telling me how moved she was, not necessarily by my sermon, but by watching her daughter watch me while I preached. And so however good my sermon was or not, however much I might be called to preach or, or not, or present the word of God in other ways, this little girl was so taken with seeing a woman in the pulpit, preaching the word of God, but also being given the authority of the church to preach the word of God. It's such a profound experience. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that yourself. Have you? I did preach at the invitation of uh, Peter Elliott, and I preached two masses at uh, at the Episcopal Cathedral of, Saint, of I believe, St. John's in Denver. And uh, of course, I had no idea what I was doing in terms of where I was supposed to go. I just They just told me, follow the verger, which I did in the procession. But as I stood at the door, both masses, people came up crying uh, and speaking to me. And it wasn't because I was female. It was because I was Catholic, and so were they. Mm. And they had uh, mm. removed themselves from the Catholic Church for one or another reason, and they were just thrilled to see a Catholic woman um, up there uh, preaching. And, and it was a very um, moving, moving experience. We've spoken about this beautiful moment that you had and a beautiful moment that I had in being the woman who is holding a, a moment of spiritual authority, proclaiming the word of God. It's very humbling. And those are beautiful moments. I know you've also experienced resistance. Would you like to share some of the resistance that you've experienced or some stories with us? Well, you know, uh, when, when you put yourself out there, and, and I tend to speak and write a lot. I have a syndicated column with the Religion News Service. I've published 20-something books, uh, and uh, I do a lot of media. So, so when you're out there, uh, individuals hear what you say uh, sometimes differently. 
And so every so often I will get a nasty phone call or a nasty letter and, and people uh, think things of me uh, and say things about me that are, are quite frankly not true. I, I've grown to the point where I, I simply have to say, well, that's what they heard and that's what they saw. And, and maybe I'll have to just be a little more clear next time that, and, and the main, the main argument is that I don't mean the diaconate, that I really mean priesthood, that I'm, it's, it's all a, a smokescreen, that I'm really trying to get women ordained as de- as priests in the Catholic church, which has never been my research and never been my interest even among educated clergy in Rome, I can tell you that I, I would sit, I, I sat at meals uh, in, uh, in Rome, uh, sat across from an official of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and I said, you know, why can't women be ordained as deacons? And he said, because women don't image, can't image Christ. And I said, watch me. And I wrote a book. <laughs> you know, I wrote a whole book called Women Icons of Christ, I really, uh, and two officials of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, now this is, this is the highest doctrinal office in the, in the Catholic Church, are saying women cannot image Christ. And, and when I say that to ordinary left foot, right foot priests, they, their eyes you know, go wide and they say, that's heresy. I said, I know it is, but, but that's, what they, that's what they say. There's a naive physicalism to thinking that somehow the person on the altar has to physically resemble Christ while at the same time the person on the altar who is preaching says that we are all made in the image and likeness of God. Uh, there's, there's just such a cognitive dis- dissonance between what the church uh, preaches and what the church seems to believe. And, and, and that, to me, is something that needs to be healed. You know, uh, women were ordained in the West up until the 12th century. But the reason it all kind of went away, the diaconate went away in, in Christianity between the 10th and the 12th century, is that the deacons uh, were quite powerful. The deacons handled all the money. The deacons were managing the parishes. We have, in our common history... 36 popes who were never priests. Uh, 36 deacons were elected as pope, as bishop of Rome, and were then consecrated as the bishop of Rome and were never priested. You see, if the deacon is running the diocese and the deacon is handling the money, typically the archdeacon, and you need a new bishop if the bishop dies, who, who would you look to to hire? Not just in Rome, in any diocese, but you would hire a person who has the experience of running the diocese. And so the priests, particularly the priests in Rome, had increasingly made the diaconate a ceremonial, uh, a ceremonial uh, office, including crazy kinds of things. When you look at them in history in the ninth century, actually the two deacons leading the the pope on horseback and helping him with his shoes, all, all sorts of ceremonial things that you could not see a woman doing. See, coincidentally, women uh, deacons were mostly in the abbeys and monasteries, but as I said earlier, in the hinterlands out there uh, where you're really rural areas. But so between the 10th and the 12th century, this, this uh, movement, I would say, against uh, a permanent diaconate uh, grew. And so you had what is called the cursus honorum and the course of honor. They became the so-called minor orders of 
Porter, Lecter, Exorcist, and Acolyte, and then the major order of subdeacon, deacon, and priest. Well, you could become a porter or a lector or an exorcist or an acolyte or a subdeacon and stay there, but no one was allowed to be ordained a deacon unless he, and by that time only he, was going to become a priest. So from, from the 12th century onward, the tradition of, of only ordaining men as deacons who were going to be priests kind of stuck. I'm reflecting on the journey of a woman in ministry, the journey of a woman who's advocating for women in ministry can often be extremely tough. But I'm just wondering about your personal life and your spiritual practices. Specifically, as you're finding these things out, as you're hearing male clergy say insulting things, even heretical things to you, as you're being misunderstood, even sometimes threatened by people who are misunderstanding you, there's an easy road to bitterness. There's an easy road to hardness of heart. And that's just because you got to have a tough skin. You have to develop, if you don't already have, a tough skin. And I hear you describe your response to that, which is, well, next time I need to be more clear. And that strikes me as a movement toward charity. So I'm wondering if you could say a word to us about what it's like to be, to have a tough row to hoe in some ways, but at the same time, not make a, not make a thing out of it being a tough row to hoe. If you see what I mean? Like it's because it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the Lord's work. So developing a life of holiness, a life of tenderness of heart, a life that's self-reflective, even in the midst of this difficulty. How do you do that? Well, you're, you're absolutely correct, Amber. It, it's not about me. And um, some, sometimes you, you wonder if you took a stupid pill to put up with you know, <laughs> the things that you put up with to uh, put yourself out there as I, as you reflected and I said earlier to you have to make sure you're you're much more more clear in what you're saying well what are we to be more clear about we're we're to be more clear about preaching the gospel and uh, you just you just daily ask for the grace to uh, to keep on keeping on you know um the the practices of prayer uh the practices of reflection the practices of retreat the practice of of attending to spiritual direction, and the practice of Sabbath. You know, um, I I I can't uh, I can't write all day. Sometimes I think I could speak all day, but that's a whole other problem. But you know, you can't you can't work all day. Uh, I I I like to walk. Uh, I like to garden. I like to see friends. Uh, I love to cook. Uh, and I've talked to friends of mine who are in somewhat similar position. They have other issues that they they are known for. And, and I've asked them, how do they deal with it? And they say, you know what? Everybody doesn't have to like you. And, and I think that's that's the distinction because I believe that what I'm saying is correct, certainly. I believe that what I say is uh, helping to have people better understand the gospel. And if they don't like me, well... Uh, I'm from New York. Call a cop. I, I just can't. I can't help you out here. Uh, I I I think that we we need to be gracious to people. We need to understand their their limitations. 
who am I to say, you can't look at me because you know who I am after I've put myself out in public for 25 years? <laughs> you know, I simply have to say thank you. Um, and, and thank you for the talents I've been given. Thank you for the access I've been given. Thank you for the, uh, the grace to, uh, to somehow keep on keeping on. Who is a saint that you would recommend to pray for us and to pray for the church in the next 50 years in regards to the role of women in the church? Who's a good saint that we can speak to about this? Well, I would, uh, I would call up Catherine of Siena. Uh, Catherine uh, Benicasa. Oh, yeah. Yeah, girl. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, is, uh, she is my friend. And, and, and she wanted to preach. She wanted to preach so much that she wanted to cut her hair and put on a Dominican man's habit. That's how much she wanted to preach in her day, you know. But she also wanted to see the church heal. And she got herself up to Avignon. She had a few followers. She ended up dying very young in Rome. When I go to Rome, I I pray at her tomb, although the church has been closed for repairs lately. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I also go down to the uh, Piazza uh, Santa Chiara around the corner from the church, which is where her rooms were and where she died. Mm. Mm. And and to to understand uh, how a woman in in that time she wrote four hundred and six letters and uh, and there's wisdom in in every one of them, but but one of them uh, if if you want to ask Catherine what you ought to do is to set the world on fire and for her her world was Italy, but I think that women are called to to set the world on fire, to, to really try to daily understand the gospel. You know, Pope Francis has just come out with a, uh, with a new uh, apostolic constitution. He's reorganizing his staff, the Curia, in Rome. And it's called Preach the Gospel. <laughs> and, and what could be a better comment on bureaucracy than to say the most important thing that we do, we as Christians, we as Catholics, we as the church hierarchy do, is to preach the gospel. And it works. If, if, if we're not about the gospel, well, what are we about? We might as well pack it up and go to the beach. You know what? We're all in this together. It's, uh, it's too short a life to be fighting about jots and tittles and to um, stick with the scripture and, and just stick with the program. I've been speaking today with Dr. Phyllis Zagano. Phyllis, thank you so much for joining us. And you have a new book you'd like to tell us to go buy immediately. It is Women Religious, Women Deacons. This and women, <laughs> oh, women, but she's, she's pointing women to her icons. other book, Women Icons of Christ. She says that's the better book, <laughs> but you should buy both of them, read them both and compare them. <laughs> Okay. And there's a test Friday. (laughs) And there is a test Friday. Phyllis, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much again for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. Email me, don't forget, at ambernoel at livingchurch.org if you enjoyed this episode or if you've got a good idea for a future episode up your sleeves. Or give us a good rating and leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you're using today. Now, can we ever get enough of our favorite Anglican, C.S. Lewis? I'm just going to answer for you, no. So 
Join me back here with Inkling experts, Crystal and David Downing from the Wade Center at Wheaton as we talk about theosis and life with God through the works and biography of C.S. Lewis and his friend, Dorothy Sayers. We explore some unexpected connections between Lewis and Eastern Christianity, and we just have a whole lot of fun. So tune in. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and once more, it's been good to be with you. Peace. Peace.